0: One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.
1: A few days ago, I received an email from a fairly new believer containing a question that was actually posed to her by her son, who is searching for truth and searching for meaning in life. I've been dwelling on that question ever since, and it sparked a desire in me to do this podcast in order to share my heart with them and with you. I've actually expanded his question into three questions that are all interrelated. These are questions that do trouble sensitive people through the years, the answers have been awakened in my heart and my mind through the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. And these answers have been a great comfort to me, and I pray that they will be a great comfort to you as well. Let me start by asking the three questions, and again, all of them are interrelated. Number one, Why does God allow evil to exist in this world and all the pain that results from it? Corrupted hearts, damaged lives, and destroyed dreams. Number two, if God is good, why is there so much in this life that we can rightfully label, quote unquote, bad? And number three, if the entity called the wicked one was created perfect before his fall, how did he ever become wicked? In the process of answering the third question, you're going to find out I'll actually answer all three. Now, there are two passages that describe Satan in great detail, his condition before and after rebelling against God, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 19, and Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 12 through 19. I'm only going to quote verse 12 and 13 of the Ezekiel passage. It was actually addressed to the king of Tyre, but its language that is so lofty, it cannot be referring merely to an earthly king. It has to be a reference to to a spiritual entity, a principality that controlled the king of Tyre and infiltrated his kingdom with darkness. Oh, yes, that happens. There are satanic, demonic powers and principalities that influence kingdoms, and Satan himself does. There was a time where Jesus was tempted of the devil in the wilderness, and you can find in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, how the devil took him up on a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. Notice the devil said that he could give the kingdoms of the world to Jesus because he said, This has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And so Satan is involved in the jostling of nations and the vying for authority within kingdoms. And I'm sure there are certain satanically inspired, satanically controlled people who try and push their way to the top. Now, the king of Tyre received this prophecy from Ezekiel. Listen closely. He said, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, of course, the king of Tyre was not in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but there was another entity who was in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and that was the wicked one in the form of a serpent. Now, originally, according to Isaiah, he was the anointed cherub that covered, and we assume it means he covered the throne of God. Cherubim are a high order of angels, that dwell in the very throne room of God. And Satan was originally the anointed cherub who covered the throne of God. Think of that. He was the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, and yet he morphed into the image of a serpent. And later on in the book of Revelation, he is depicted as a great red dragon, hideous horrific, horrible-looking, how did that transformation take place? How did he go from being the perfection of beauty to the epitome of ugliness and darkness? Why would God allow that? Well, I believe when I answer these questions about Satan, it's going to overflow to the other two questions I asked at the beginning. Did God author the evil in Satan? Absolutely not. Did God allow the evil that manifested out of Satan? Yes, he did. But how did that happen and why? I'm going to present to you five issues that I believe are very important in supplying the answer. Number one, the issue of love. Angels express love toward God. Cherubim and seraphim express love toward God. Their worship is not mechanical. Their love for the Creator is not just programmed into them. Because love is not real, it is not authentic if it's just something that is inserted into us like a computer program, a certain way we have to function because we're programmed to be that way. Yes, God gives angels and men and women the opportunity to love him and to serve him. God gives us the grace sufficient to love him and to serve him, but at its root, it's all about choice. We choose to love him because only then can love be genuine. Otherwise, everything is robotic in nature. Would you want to own a robot? who responded to you with words of love and respect only because that's the way you programmed it to respond? Not really. That would get old very quickly and have no value. And a robotic creation would have no value. God had to install and instill in the angels of heaven and also in the human beings that came forth from Adam and Eve on earth, something called free will. We have to choose out of a free will to honor God, to love God, to serve God, to be devoted to God, because then it's real, then it's genuine. It's a choice we make. Yes, God gives us the capacity of doing that, but he doesn't program us to do that. It's not that mechanical It's not that computer-like. Or it would lose its value. It would lose its beauty. There is no beauty in love that is forced. You can't force anyone to love you. Or you can force them to say the right words. You can force them to respond to you the way you want them to respond if you're that kind of authoritarian person. But it's not real. Not unless it streams from the heart. So number one is the issue of love. Number two is the issue of obedience, because love is proven by obedience. Let me quote to you a scripture that I believe is very important. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua said this to the children of Israel, if you think it's the wrong thing for you to serve the Lord, Then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, the gods whom your ancestors served on the other side of the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose territories you are living. Then Joshua said something so powerful. He said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, that was a choice that he was making. He said, we will serve the Lord. God doesn't want slaves. He wants sons. That's a very important statement. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say keep my commandments because you'll be punished if you don't. That's the mentality of a slave. A slave fears retribution if he doesn't keep commandments. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my." commandments. In other words, let your love result in action. Let it be demonstrated. Let it be revealed because you passionately go after the commandments that I've given you. Well, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a decision that I make, not because I have to, but because I want to, not because I fear the results of not doing it, but because I enjoy the results of doing it, of serving God. Obedience is an important lesson to be learned in life. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, talks about Jesus and said, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. How do you learn obedience? There's really two roads that lead to that same goal. Number one, you learn obedience by obeying God and reaping the benefits. Number two, you learn obedience by disobeying God and by reaping the grief and the evil consequences. But both ways, when you get to that ultimate point, after the experience is over and after you dwell on the results of it, it works the same work in you it results in a deep-seated understanding of the value of obedience, the choice to obey that you made or the choice to disobey that you made and the resulting consequence. You learn the lesson of obedience as a result. Why is that important? Because you will have such a position of authority in the kingdom to come that you would be dangerous to the new creation if there was any potential in you for disobedience. In the book of Revelation, it says, he who overcomes shall inherit all things. And in various parables, Jesus made it clear that he would give his people positions of authority in the kingdom to come. Well, we have to prove our worthiness for those positions We have to prove that we can be trusted with those positions of authority in the new creation to come by exhibiting obedience out of a foundational attitude of love or we could never be trusted with the destiny that is unfolding before us. In fact, that leads me to the third issue. Issue number three is the issue of reward. The very fact that God promises a reward to his people would be ludicrous if God just programmed love in us and programmed obedience in us, and we were like puppets on a string that did God's bidding. He's sovereign. We are completely submitted to whatever he has an impulse that we should do at any given time why would God reward you for puppet-like behavior? Of course not. There's no rhyme or reason to that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's a choice you make out of loving desire, a desire to be intimate with God, a desire to obey his will for your life. You seek him diligently and God rewards you as a result. The Bible said that he's coming again and his reward is with him. He is so passionate about rewarding his people that he will come with that reward when he returns again at the end of this age. Think of that. Now, some of the rewards you get in this life and some of the rewards you'll get in the life to come, but it's all based on a free will choice. God cannot reward mechanical behavior that he inserts into your mind and heart in a complete control of your actions. There would be no reward due to something like that. In Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 and 20, listen to what God says. I call heaven and earth to testify against you today. I have set life and death before you today, both blessings and curses. Choose life that it may be well with you. You and your children love the Lord your God, obey his voice and cling to him because he is your life. Those words make it very clear that it was a choice they had to make. God said, Choose life that it may be well with you, you and your children. Love the Lord your God, obey his voice, cling to him because he is your life. So the decision to cling to God and obey him and love him brings well being for you and for your children and for your household and for all those your life touches. There's an overflow of the goodness of God. That's part of the reward that happens in this life, which would be an absurd thing to believe if free will was not a part of the equation. Number four, the fourth issue is something I call the heavenly GPS. I've got GPS on my phone and in my car, and I use it every trip I take. And one amazing thing about that program is that when I make a wrong turn, it immediately reroutes me to take me to the same destination. When I make a mistake and turn right instead of left or go too far and miss the turn, It reroutes me and tells me, turn around, make a U-turn, go up here, turn right, turn right again, whatever, in order to get me to the correct destination. And if there's anything I know about God, he allows free will to exist in us because he knows he's a genius. I call it God's positioning system, GPS. He's a genius at taking us when we make stupid choices, bad errors in our life, we falter, we fail immediately, that heavenly GPS kicks in, he reroutes us to take us to the destination he had for us all along, our individual destiny that we have that is unique to each person, and a corporate destiny that is unfolding before all of the people of God. And that leads me to issue number five, the issue of metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is a complete transformation. In the scripture, Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and we are transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The word that is translated transformed there is metamorpho. And that's, of course, the word we get metamorphosis from. It means a complete transformation, as radically different as an oak tree is from an acorn. The acorn is the beginning. The oak tree is the end of the journey of destiny and that hidden life that is contained within the heart of the seed. Think of that. There's a hidden purpose, hidden life inside of you that's carrying you to an ultimate destination. I don't have time to go into this deeply, but I do want to crown this teaching with this thought. In the very beginning, God spoke over Adam and Eve when they were just a conception within his mind. And he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That was God's original purpose. For man to image the character of God inwardly and to image the likeness, the appearance of God outwardly. I believe that Jesus is the eternal image of the invisible God. And he was the form of God who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, we were made in his image both inwardly and outwardly, both physically and spiritually. Think of that. When God said, let us make man in our image, I wonder, I just wonder, did God understand that it would take thousands of years for that to come to pass fully? Now, I'm sure that Adam and Eve were perfect in every way, but there were certain attributes of God's personality that were not in them, that could not have been in them. See, God is a merciful God, and mercy is, is an attitude of heart is compassion towards someone who deserves judgment think of that never in the garden of eden was mercy manifested from god because no one deserved judgment also an attribute called compassion was never evidenced in the garden of eden compassion is love that feels the pain of someone who is suffering well no one in the garden of eden was suffering so God could never exhibit compassion. And what about forgiveness? Forgiveness, the willingness to wipe out sin, to remit sin. That was never manifested in the Garden of Eden because Adam and Eve never sinned until the day they transgressed. So there were certain parts of God's personality that were hidden from view and I would dare to say were not a part of Adam's personality, were not a part of Eve's personality, because they were never in a situation or a circumstance that demanded the development of those character traits. But then the fall took place. When the fall took place, the heavenly GPS kicked in, God rerouted things, and instead of man being made in the image of God in a perfect environment, God used an imperfect world to fulfill his perfect purpose. Because once Adam and Eve plunged into sin, they learned the mercy of God. They learned the compassion of God. They learned the forgiveness of God. And I would dare to say those same qualities were developed in them. Now, fast forward thousands of years to the day of resurrection. Will Adam and Eve rise from the dead in the day of resurrection? I tend to believe that they repented to the degree necessary uh, and to the degree allowed at that point in the evolution of the plan of redemption in this world. Yes, someone taught Abel how to offer an acceptable sacrifice to God in order to receive atonement for sin, so that must have been Adam. Yes, I believe Adam repented, I believe Eve repented. I believe they were in the lower parts of the earth when Jesus preached the gospel to the dead. I believe they received him as Savior. I believe they were translated up to heaven with all the other saints of the Old Testament that were waiting for the Redeemer. And I believe they will return with the Lord Jesus Christ along with 10,000s of his saints and the dead in Christ will rise. And we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And we will all go through a metamorphosis on a grand scale. This mortal will put on immortality and all the characteristics of God, like compassion, mercy, forgiveness that were developed in us in a fallen state will be brought to utter perfection and splendor in a celestial heavenly state in us. And so in the end, God's original purpose will reach ultimate fulfillment because when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So why does evil exist in this world? There's at least five issues that prove to me in the end, God will bring his people out victoriously. And it was something he allowed, not that he authored, But thank God, something that he saw.
0: Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled, In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global Internet family.